Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Got a good guest this week, Jeff Cesario. Now, Jeff is a stand-up comedian, and you've seen him on Letterman, on The Tonight Show, Conan, Kimmel. He's made the rounds. He's also a writer-producer, and he worked on The Larry Sanders Show. Also, he has an alter ego, sportscaster Chet Waterhouse, and as Chet, he does a very entertaining podcast called Play With Pain, and I was the guest a couple of weeks ago, if you want to check that out. Anyway, Jeff and I talk a lot about the business of stand-up comedy, the changes in the industry, and we also talk a lot about Gary Shandling and just what made him so special. It's a fun half hour. Jeff Cesario this week on Hollywood and Levine. But first, a recommendation for your summer reading. Have you heard of the Eli Marks mystery series? Somebody told me about these, and I started reading them. There are six books, and they are all really, really fun. As you know, I love mysteries, and I love magic. I've had novelists on the podcast. I have also had magicians, and this character combines the two. Eli Marks is a working magician, and he lives in Minneapolis, and in each of the six books, he gets tangled up in another fun and very baffling murder mystery. And yes, I'm recommending it, but I want you to try one for free. Okay, here's what you do. You head over to elimarksmysteries.com, and you can download a free copy of The Invisible Assistant. Ooh, that website again, elimarksmysteries.com. That's Eli, E-L-I, Marks, M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. Or you can stop by Hollywood and Levine, uh, my website, and I got the link there for you, and you can get your free copy of The Invisible Assistant. Great fun at the beach or the pool, wherever you are. It's the summer. You want to read this kind of stuff. The Eli Marks Mysteries. Okay, so how does a kid from Wisconsin <laughs> decide to get into comedy? And your parents must have been so proud. Uh, you, you know, I was a musician prior to that, so this was a step up in stability. <laughs> That's so very they were, true. They were thrilled. Uh-huh. Uh, my dad was a very funny guy, and my mom was unintentionally funny. Uh, so between the two of them, I kind of got a feel for it. And as a kid, you know, you're always searching for something to which you have an affinity, because that's going to kind of lock you in a little bit with uh, with the dames back in uh, yeah, I was high. I was just going to say because you know. that's why I got into comedy. Yeah, was to attract girls. You know, and so you start with sports, and if you have an affinity for that, you stay with it. And if you don't, you start to search for other areas. And it's probably good advice for life in general, which is uh, you know find something. Yes, it's America. Yes, you can do whatever you want if you apply yourself. But maybe find something you have a natural affinity for, and you're going to probably go a little further. And and I 
found that I could make people laugh and that um, uh, I loved watching the comics on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson uh, uh-huh. when I was a kid and my folks would kind of let me stay up a little later and do that. And so I really got the bug at a young age and I said, I got to try this. I didn't get to comedy till I was 28, though. Okay, what did you do beforehand? You were a musician? A musician and a writer. Okay. I wrote sports uh, in the Midwest and... Um, and uh, and then I wrote uh, freelance in the Midwest, Minneapolis, Madison, Chicago, Milwaukee, and uh, the great Bill Dwyer, who went on to be uh, the, the uh, sports editor of the L.A. Times, right. was, uh, was sports editor at the Milwaukee Journal, mm-hmm. and helped me a lot uh, understand that uh, stick-to-itiveness, especially in freelancing, is uh, is an uh, you know uh, a plus. <laughs> so, and he liked the fact that. Um, that I wrote with a sense of humor. So I wrote color pieces for for uh, the sports section. Uh, facts were not my strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I kind of got an inkling, eh, maybe, maybe I should try full bore comedy for a change. And that's when I said, boy, when I hit 28, I went, man, if I don't get to this, uh, I don't want to be 40 and look around. So that led you to Los Angeles? It led me to Minneapolis initially. I was in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, trying to make ends meet, playing, uh, playing gigs as a drummer and uh, still doing some freelancing here and there. And uh, uh, then I said, I got to try comedy. I had done an open mic at the comedy store in L.A. coming out, visiting some relatives. I had done an open mic at the uh, Improv in New York uh, And, uh, you know, so I was all jazzed up. Every time I went to a comedy club, the one thing I knew was certain was I was not supposed to be in the crowd. I was supposed to be on stage. (laughs) I could not. I was so antsy trying to sit and watch a comedy show. I would leave. I would have to leave. Right. I couldn't take it. So then I did an open mic in Chicago. And that was tempting. But they only had two or three clubs in Chicago at the time. And there was probably 100 comics. And then I went to Minneapolis because... An ex-girlfriend lived there. Oh, I was going to say fewer comedy clubs, certainly. <laughs> uh, two, there, were, there was only one at the time, but there was only really, truly about 12 comics. And I hit it right in the early 80s, right when the comedy boom was hitting. And they needed new blood right that literally within two months of me showing up, they were getting so much return business at this little club that they needed uh, new comics so that the return customers could see their favorites do most of the same 20 minutes they did and a little bit of new material and see some new idiot like me go up and do a brand new 10 virtually anytime they came uh-huh. so i had the luxury of uh, no social media and i could make a crap load of mistakes in front of nobody with nobody taping it so i was getting two and a half hours of stage time within a year of starting coming. wow that's great that's crazy yeah. it's yeah. a crazy amount so eventually you come to L.A. Yeah, and, and then, uh, you get Anderson, on The Tonight Show. Yeah, I, I had worked with Louis Anderson in Minneapolis, and Louis preceded me out here by about nine months and was a regular at the comedy store. So I thought, okay, now's my shot. I was, I'd been doing it about three years, but I, I, uh, I had a lot of material. I really liked to write. So, uh, so yeah, so I came out here, and within a year of doing uh, uh, of working in L.A. at the Improv at the Comedy Store, I got Letterman was my first national shot mm. in 84. And that set me up at clubs and colleges. So I knew I could make a living even based in L.A. Right. Because the first thing you have to do when you base yourself in L.A. is 
understand that you're going to make most of your money on the road mm-hmm. as a stand-up. But right. if you can make enough to afford L.A. rent, <laughs> then you can do this weird, weird, uh, crazy, bizarro world life. Um, and I did that, and then I kept plugging away and plugging away and plugging away, and by 87, I had enough material um, in the bank uh, where Jim McCauley said uh, from The Tonight Show, the, the great, uh, late great talent coordinator from The Tonight Show, uh, said, I, I think we can give you a shot. And uh, back then, that was the only way to get anything going in your career. For right. Stand-up, was the right. Tonight that Show. was the brass ring. Yeah. And so for you as a kid watching The Tonight Show to actually be on it. Oh my God! What was that like? It must have been an out of body experience. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't even uh, I couldn't even eat. I couldn't even think. Um, you know, you just go, Oh my God, it's here! And you know, the funnel for comedians and comic actors was as big as it is now. Uh, but the narrow end of the funnel, the top end of the funnel was huge. The narrow end was just The Tonight Show. Right. Or SNL if you were a sketch performer. That was it. There were two little teeny holes <laughs> at the bottom of the funnel. Now there's so many, you know, you can podcast, you can sketch, you can do so many other things. You can get into other ways to put your comedy out there. Back then, that was it. So to come through that small end of the, uh, of the funnel and be on The Tonight Show, I just, uh, Macaulay was smart. He knew that everybody felt that. And that, uh, you know, that their, that their gonads were in their throat. Yeah, he had the keys to the castle, boy, didn't he? He really did. In terms did. of comedy. But he was smart to know, okay, here's the deal. Think of it as your first of four or five that you're going to do. If it goes well, we feel you have the material in the bank to do another one in the next uh, two months or something if we, if we need you. So that was about the only thing they could do to kind of relax you. Uh-huh. And... You know, back then, I mean, I, I just happened to see that spot. I think it may even be up on my website, my first Tonight Show. Um, but Carl Reiner was the guest, and Johnny was so great. He would just roll out the red carpet. And I don't know what. Now, 30 years later, having done a, a crap load of pr- producing, I don't know what the meetings were like. But, you know, maybe somebody s- was saying to him, this kid's strong. He's solid. He's a great joke writer, good monologist, sort of a, a mini Leno or a mini, whatever, you know, whatever. And so he went, okay. And, and then when he introduced me, it was like, uh, you're really going to, uh, you're here on a good night. That's the first <laughs> thing he said. Oh, that's great. You're here on a good night. You're a great crowd for a good young comedian. He just kept laying out pipe where where people are like, oh, this kid's going to be fun, you know, and boom, then you hit, and my first joke crushed, and, and I went from, and I still remember that joke, which was, uh, uh, you know, I'm full-blooded Italian. I show up at a beach in California. People just go, who called a cab? <laughs> that was my first joke. And that, it's a good joke. Yeah, yeah. It, it, good joke. It is a good joke. It, it killed, uh-huh. and then I relaxed. I could literally feel the soles of my feet, which was my goal, was feel your feet, feel, feel your, your connection to the earth, and then you'll be, then you'll be okay. And so did your career take off as a result of that? Well, yeah. I mean, I wound up um, doing about 14 Tonight Shows in about four years from 87 through 91. But did you get bigger clubs? I got, or I got more money. TV offers? Yeah, I got, uh, got more money in the clubs. I got television deals. I got uh, development deals uh, with CBS, uh, both primetime and late night. I got, uh, uh, you know, I was on the sheet 
uh, that they would use when they were looking for guest hosts for this or that or the uh-huh. other thing. I got some of those and and uh so through that process I did uh I did yeah I got and I got more uh showtime specials and uh and things like that. So I really established myself as a sort of a go-to comic. I don't think I stuck out as a, a tremendous character comic or something like that. I was more in the monologist school. I was more the guy who was next in line if uh, The Tonight Show came up or if a different late, what goes on after Letterman, that show, uh-huh. or what goes on <laughs> after, uh, 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 you know, uh, the CBS equivalent of that. So when they were starting to explore the later of the world. and yeah, the late, you're in the bullpen. Shows. Yes, Yeah, exactly. you're in the bullpen. Lefty in the bullpen. Yeah, get throwing heat up at the, with the Syracuse Chiefs. <laughs> so you, you also made kind of a right turn because you got into producing and writing and you produced and wrote on the Larry Sanders show, which is one of the great situation comedies of all time. Talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, yeah. Gary was uh, an absolute genius. If if I may briefly, here's how I got there. I had befriended Dennis Miller when we both just did clubs here in L.A. And uh, then uh, Dennis had had a brief syndicated show uh, that uh, didn't make it. And HBO said, we want uh, Dennis to do six shows and just, just do the ranting part of it. You know, just some stand-up mm-hmm. and some ranting. And Denny came to me and he said, Jeffro, I got this shot. It could be the last thing I do. I don't know what's going on. You want to produce it? And I went, sure, I'll produce it. And I had no producing experience. Uh-huh. And, and once again, as you know, in these rooms, I'm sure now, based on what I know now, they had a meeting three times a week between HBO and Brad Gray, who was representing Dennis, going, kid's nice. Could we get a producer in here? <laughs> uh, but I knew Dennis. I knew the show he wanted to do. We did a show. And uh, in the first... Eight shows, we won two Emmys for Wow, writing. congratulations. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was really, we, we just, we got, where there was great serendipity and great fortuitousness and great, uh, great skill. And Denny knew who he was. Dennis introduced me to Gary. Uh, when Gary would, Gary Shandling would guest host The Tonight Show, Denny would write for him. It was like the weirdest writer's room. Uh, Gary Dennis was, Miller used to write for yeah, Gary Shandling? for The Tonight Show. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. uh, Gary was just uh, so wonderful with writers because he was a writer. He started writing sitcoms, uh, right. you know, yeah, the same Sanford, Sanford and, and Sons and all yeah. of those. Mm-hmm. So he loved writers. So he would take everything the Tonight Show writers would, would give. He would use uh, uh, Gene and Reese, Al Gene and Mike Reese. Uh, he would use... Uh, d- Went on to The Simpsons. Uh, yes. yes. And so he would get lists from guys he knew who were good writers. And then Dennis would go in uh, on the week or two-week period that Gary was guest hosting The Tonight Show. And Dennis would literally go in. I got a call from Dennis one day saying, we're stumped on a joke. We got the set up um um uh, tammy faye baker is going to take leave from her show and she's looking for guest hosts that's the setup we don't have a joke come on if you think of something and i'm sitting in my studio apartment in studio city <laughs> just sweating because i didn't have air conditioning and so in five minutes i came up with a joke is tammy faye baker would uh, is going to hire uh, uh, joan rivers because that way they don't have to change makeup ladies <laughs> so gary loved, gary loved yeah. the joke and he said bring him in the next time and so Gary and I hit it off in this little teeny writer's room of Dennis Miller, Gary Shandling, and Jeff Cesario. So I would write material for The Tonight Shows. And then when Sanders came around, I was actually working on Dennis Miller Live doing the uh, season three. And, uh, and uh, I wound up writing an episode with Judd Apatow. 
uh, based on an experience that had happened inside the show. Uh, I had I had kept writing for Gary, for Larry, for the monologues. Okay. Because nobody was writing monologue. I mean, you know, that staff was so talk about uh, uh, writing from character. That's all they did was write from character on that show. It was like dramatic writing with just a slight left turn into humor. It was crazy intense. And so I would just write jokes for Larry for the monologues. And he would do a monologue night. He would take mm-hmm. eight, eight monologues in one night and change suits in between them. And he'd be done for the season. Uh, so I got my, my whistle wet doing that. And I met Judd Apatow. And as a sort of thank you for doing that, Gary, as Larry, would often close the talk show portion of the Larry Sanders show by saying, um, um, my, uh, my apologies to Jeff Cesario, a uh, young comic was going to be on the show. We had to bump him tonight. <laughs> so he would do that to get my name on the air right. and have fun. That was and, nice. And it became this kind of running gag. Right. Uh, and so after 10 times that happened, I said, Judd, why don't we do a thing where I, where I get bumped for like the 10th time in a row? And, get, and Larry feels so guilty that he has to uh, – that, uh, that he promises to get me on the next night. And then the next night – all hell breaks loose. Uh, and Hank's dad died and he wanted to do a eulogy. Tom Petty said, oh, sure, I'll do three songs instead of one. Uh, you know, everything <laughs> went crazy on this ticking clock and they still managed to squeeze me on. And then uh, the upshot is, the tag is, the whole thing gets canceled for another slow speed celebrity chase through the streets of L.A. <laughs> so we had a, Judd had it all mapped out and he, he knew what he was doing and um, and so I helped write that script and Gary liked it. And then the next season, Gary said, would you like to write for the show? So I said, I'd love to. And it was like just narrative camp. I would go every day to CBS Radford and just watch Peter Tolan work and watch John Vitti work and watch John Regi work and, uh, and, uh, and just marvel at, at how they could put together these stories. And then just watch Gary. I mean, Gary was just stunning his sense of story. I'll never forget once he, he just came in. We started taping on Wednesdays and it was Tuesday night and he walked in and he just went, I figured out the story. We have to start at the ending of the script. So it was a classic, complete page one rewrite the night before, but he knew it and he knew it and he was right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I learned so much about about writing and 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 everything and production. I mean, I'll never forget. <laughs> I tell this all the time, but it's so true. We would we would start a script, and those scripts were intricate, and they were they were so much fun, and they were written with certain people in mind, perhaps celebrities who we could possibly get to be right, on the panel as the guests. Yeah. So so you know, we would start a writing cycle on like a Thursday. And it would be, man, this would be great for De Niro. And by the following Wednesday, before we started shooting or whatever, it would be, get me Bruno Kirby now, <laughs> you know. And then Bruno would come in and kill it, you know. But it, it was these arcs where they were constantly grasping and grabbing. The, oh, wait, 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 get to company and get, and maybe he'll do it. And then boom, we would get enough big celebrities to do it. It was so much fun. So let me ask you about Dennis Miller. I mean, here's a guy, I was a big Dennis Miller fan. And he was a big liberal and very rational guy. And then somehow he makes this right turn, this severe right turn. And he's now this Republican crazy person. What the hell happened to, to Dennis Miller? Well, I think we got to start with the notion that 
that he was ever a liberal. I think Dennis will admit to being a libertarian. And I think that's what we emphasized was the more liberal aspects of libertarianism when I did the HBO show. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I think Denny was all on board with that. But, you know, uh, Denny in a room by himself was going, what the hell's with these people for Christ's sake? You know, and then we would go, all right, let, well, let's kick it around and see. And, of course, you're working for HBO, so you know that there's going to be a liberal bent uh, in the upper echelon. So, you know, we thought, okay, let's, let's try to at least go down the middle of the road. And, I mean, one of the, one of the very first rants we did and we might have it might have even been on a show that that uh, that we won an emmy for i can't remember i'd have to look but um was the death of liberalism and how do you remember when there were liberal republican senators like lowell weicker yeah and everett dirksen mm-hmm. and people like that Nelson and Nelson rockefeller there was a yeah. balance there and you understood okay the definition between the parties tends to be along the philosophical pathways of how do we build the economy of a country how do we emphasize the size of government stuff like that so we said you know our, our very first our very first uh, show was too political. It was too much. I mean, he came off, uh, uh, you know, he had had to work his ass off. He was hitting a heavy bag out there. And he literally came off and he said, Jeffro, we need more jokes. And boom, we went at the jokes. And the very second show, we won an Emmy for that episode, the one right after when we said, okay, we can't dwell on politics. We can touch on it, but if there isn't a joke within 30 seconds of something Dennis is saying, we are way off base. So we just started to emphasize the jokes more than the politics of it. And I think Denny ran with it. We always tried to make a point. We always tried to have a spine to the rant, something that created a conclusion. And and then I think um, we said, okay, we're succeeding at that. And then it really started to work. And then I left after the first 39 and 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 the show proceeded for another eight years. I, I mean, think. now he's pretty much wearing a MAGA hat. So I think what – I think he's come off that a little bit. I think he realizes that, that, uh, that Trump may not be – the, the guy to carry, um, you know, the standard bearer. Or is, or is he losing too many fans? I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I do know this. When I watch his specials, he still makes me laugh. He's still an un, unbelievable comic. Uh, you know, I will agree largely with uh, chunks of, of his political material, and I think a lot of people might or might not. Some of his old fans certainly would. But he's still... Man, just a top-notch comic. There's, you know, he'll do an hour, 20 minutes of it. I toss out the other 40. I'm laughing. The guy knows how to write a joke. He knows his way around a premise. He knows how to tell a joke and build something. And I think he's also come to recently especially. I know he did Jimmy Kimmel uh, not too long ago. And in that shot, he was just killing you know, he was just doing the jokes where he goes, okay, let me nibble the corners. You know, maybe in my special, I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw some heat down the middle because I think the Republicans are on board now. But, you know, I just think what happened was he got older, he got a little more successful, and, and his leanings, he went with his leanings because he wasn't doing a big show anymore. And he just went, all right, here's how I, I genuinely feel. And I know that, that uh, he was tight with Bush. And I think that solidified it. And, you know, in retrospect now, you can look at the second George Bush and go, 
all right, I might not have agreed with his politics, but boy, he slung from the hip and he seemed like a square shooter. And, you know, a lot of things that you would want if you couldn't right. have your party win. His heart was in the right place. Yes. yes. And, and so I think that's where Dennis... Uh, did did what was only a slight turn from from libertarian to where he was. Mm-hmm. All right, or where he is now. It, it seemed like a big turn. It did, but yeah. but I, I I don't actually think it was. Now I never wanted to be a stand up. I've done improv for so many years, but uh, for my podcast as an experiment, I did an open mic night. Uh-huh. And this was a couple of years ago. It was one of my earlier episodes. And and I said, uh, okay, I am going to record this and I'm going to play it back. Whether I bomb or I do well, whatever happens, I'm going to play it back. And my uh, friend of mine who is a, a comic set it up for me at a club at like 9.30 at night. And the open mic night started at 8. So I came at 8 because I wanted to hear all of the other comics. Right. And... Back in the 70s, I used to live close to the comedy store, and I'd go to the comedy store all the time. And I would see Letterman and Leno sure. and Gary and, right. and all these guys. And they worked so hard night after night to perfect their act, to yeah. just find the right word to make this joke work. And, and I'm watching one comic after another and they're just getting up there and they're just winging it and they're sloppy and they're going, well, okay, uh, the penguin jokes aren't going to work. Well, fuck that. Let's just do this. And, you know, and, and I was just, I was, I mean, I had five minutes and I had a story and jokes that led up to a punchline, right. you know, and a big payoff and everything. And, um, and I was talking to some of the other comics and uh, who are some of the older comics, and they're saying, yeah, that's, that's the new comedy now. Because I was saying, how do these people ever expect to make a living? They're, right. they're just not working hard at all. Is that the new comedy? I mean, you guys worked so hard to perfect your craft. Right. And, you know, there's always that argument. <laughs> it's the new comedy, you know. And then it turns out you still got to write jokes. Um, yeah, people weren't laughing. You know, the, the, the best uh, alt comics now, which is the new comedy, and the post-alt comics, the best ones still write great jokes. Pat Oswalt, who's, I would say, on the Mount Rushmore of alt comedy, writes killer jokes and knows how to deliver them. Knows, senses the energy of the crowd. He's still a performer. The alt for a guy like Patton, I think, comes in the notion that you are always analyzing your performance in the moment, in the present. You are always analyzing your relationship with your audience in the present. Okay. Which is less so for my generation. We're more presentational. Right, you just we'll come, come in, you're spank. just going to do your thing, and if it bombs, you just keep going forward. I'm emptying the clip. Right. And uh, I might change clips if I think the audience is going to respond to something a little differently because my job is to make them laugh. That's the work ethic I came up with. I think they're the, the, the newer rubric is is to stay in the present. And actually, the, the reason... Gary Shandling tied so strongly to many of those performers, including people like Patton, including uh, Sarah Silverman and people like that, is because he did that on stage. That's what I learned right. from Gary. He allowed when others me, weren't. No. Right? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. He allowed me to learn how to become less presentational, to tap in more into who I was, bring more of that out in my character. Not only was Gary's presentational act revealing on who he was, uh, because he would always do jokes about himself. He would always be self-deprecating, which allowed him to get away with unbelievable stuff that nobody else could get away with. <laughs> Gary could literally do a joke like, I, I went to look at homes in the uh, real estate agent uh, showed me a really small home, but they said, uh, it's a million dollars. I said, for a million dollars? And they go, no, it's the, it's the view. I go, well, for a million dollars, I better see tits out the window. You know, he would <laughs> do a joke like that in 1981 or something and get away with it. Right. But nobody else could get away with that joke because... People bought his personality. He was so organic. And then he would, he would uh, discuss with the crowd sometimes. It wasn't crowd work, what do you do, where are you from? It was like, oh, is, is that, was that, what happened? Did, did that joke not strike you right? Uh-huh. You, see, you seem concerned. You know, he would go off in like these emotional connections to right. the crowd. Right. And when I saw that, I went, oh, wow, I can kind of expand a little more back to what I used to kind of try to do when I first started and then thought I had to kind of bring the 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 corral in i can take those corral fences and move them out a little bit further now because gary kind of showed me how to do that so you're doing a podcast now talk a little bit about your podcast oh brother i do a podcast (laughs) called play with pain which is my alter ego chet waterhouse a sports announcer who uh is benevolent a little bit daft uh never made the pros uh, calls real weird third-tier sports like international speed fishing and the interstate barehanded highway culvert hunt <laughs> and the weak-handed axe-throwing competition. He calls those, but he calls them like they're the seventh game of the World Series. He's very enthused. He knows it's the biggest, it's the biggest deal in these people's lives, and he treats it with that level of respect. Uh, the podcast grew out of... Uh, updates. I would do sports updates as Chet Waterhouse. The first time I ever did it out here was the early 90s when I did them on K-Rock. K-Rock with Kevin and Bean. Yeah. 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 And I loved it. I had a great time. I would do these two-minute little blasts and uh, always had a, a great time with them. I would do them in my act since the late mid to late 80s. And uh, it started – It's it, the voice is a lot of this. It's a lot of Bob Uecker and a, a little bit of Harry Carey and uh, some Bob Albert thrown in there. Uh, but really the spirit of it is a guy from the Midwest – who did Wisconsin football when I was growing up. And when Wisconsin was horrible, the University of Wisconsin was bad at football. And he would make the game sound interesting. His name was Earl Gillespie. Oh, yeah. He also did uh, Milwaukee Braves. Yes, he did the Braves when I was growing up. Blaine Walsh Yeah, sure. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And Earl could make Wisconsin football sound interesting to an 11-year-old kid on the radio. I'm listening to him on radio and, you know, he would he would say stuff like there's the kickoff from Mill- from uh, Illinois, Billy Merrick under it for the Badgers at the five. He's churning, spinning, driving to the six. And you go, <laughs> well, as an adult, I realized that Billy Merrick just fell down and nearly fumbled. But, you know, uh, um, the spirit was there and I loved the enthusiasm making something not good sound good 
on on radio and that that's been my whole career <laughs> yeah right, right. <laughs> but that's the spirit for me so I, I took that character and then flash forward to literally like two years ago and uh i get an opportunity to guest on the adam carolla podcast and i go oh, I, you know you guys mind if i do this character and his producer said you're running up the flagpole so i did a two-minute chat cast and it just crushed and it finishes and 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 adam goes your Chet Waterhouse? And I go, yeah. And he goes, <laughs> way back when I was still doing construction and listening to K-Rock, and I was just beginning to, to, to get my radio career going, you're what I loved about the show. I would, I would listen to, to Chet religiously every day. And uh, just based on that little thing, and then I realized, well, that's why I crushed is because he was a fan of the show. Uh, and uh-huh. Everybody kind of got the jokes. And if, if you listen to Chet, whether it's on Corolla, I still go on every two, three weeks. Or if you listen to my podcast, Play With Pain on Podcast One or Apple Podcasts, you, you'll hear I lead off every podcast with a two-and-a-half-minute update. That's just silly, d- real results. Of, of, of real events, Chet does an update. He does, uh, you know, what happened in the NBA today? Oh, brother, that uh, Steph Curry's going to be harder to catch than a glimpse of your neighbor's wife naked. You know, he does bad analogies and horrible <laughs> sponsors. Uh, that's that's portion of the broadcast sponsored by Throwbacks, the e-cigarette you light with a match. You know, just <laughs> or, or incognito. You'd never guess we're plumbers. You know, just, just I got a, a thousand of those. Uh-huh. So whenever anything... anything anything flags i always throw a, a commercial endorsement in knowing i've got a laugh that buttons anything and chat ping pongs between these horrible events that he has to call and then i always have a guest and you were kind enough to uh, to have uh, guested on my podcast yeah you know and i thought i did real well but now looking back you did probably 50 of those commercials no, during the course of like hey okay, i know i would just say well yeah i and this was brought to you by oh so, that, yeah. that blatant <laughs> self-deprecation <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by Sweet Coast Penicillin Nut Bar. Munch the pain away with Sweet Coast. So, and that's what I always loved about those guys, too, is they always, you know, as you know, a baseball announcer is responsible for killing an awful lot of time. Yeah. You know, there are days when the game is exciting and there are days where it is just dragging on. And it is not a good game between the 28 and 59 Mariners and the 31 and 49 Angels. <laughs> Angels coming out strong. They've won two in a row. You know, I mean, how do you kill that time? Yeah, I know. I, yeah. lo- I love that about that. And that's all encompassed in Chet. And I just thought, hey, boy, I really love this guy and I want to do something with him. And Adam Carolla, who is, you know, podcast king and, and – uh, and uh, is, is one of the cornerstones here at Podcast One said, you know, why don't you try a podcast? And, and so I did. And through his good graces and the ability to still appear on, uh, on uh, his uh, wonderful podcast every now and then and, and, and keep, uh, keep people coming back to check out Play With Pain, that's what it is. And I love the old school, all right, now it's time for the Fiery Four. And, you know, <laughs> all right, it's Advice Corner. I love these sort of branded segments that guys used to do even back in the 50s, you know, brought to you by Schlitz. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I was doing the Orioles with John Miller, and we had a team, it was terrible. We lost 95 games. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, 
There was a, an old announcer for the Oakland A's for a while named Red Rush, and he also did Boston for a while. And he was one of these kind of guys, and we would mock him on the air. It was always, this is some kind of a day for a ball game. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. Some kind of a day. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, we'd be doing this, and, and he and I would, like, be dueling, you know, and the Beantown Marauders. Right. You know, and, the, and I'm sure the listeners were going, what the hell? hell are these two guys doing meanwhile we're losing 15 to 1 yeah you know to oakland no you so. gotta find something <laughs> you know and 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 i loved that about about sportscasters and chet waterhouse encompasses that no matter where it, 108 degrees no breeze whatsoever perfect day for the death valley thermometer explosions <laughs> you know he just he'll come up with something a good way to sell it He's going to sell it no matter what he's got to do. That's Chet. So I love doing it. I've had everybody as a guest from from uh, Bob Costas to Eric Roberts to the great Kathleen Madigan. I have comics. I had Danny Trejo on, uh, Kevin Pollack. I've had uh, writers on. Uh, well, give uh, me your Rolodex. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah. go. She'd give me your Rolodex. Uh, I, I'd I, love I, to get Kathleen Madigan on this oh, show. Oh, man. Uh, she would do it in a heartbeat, too. She, she, would, she would do your podcast, especially if you talk sports. Uh, if you mix sports and comedy. And mention St. Louis and everything oh, else. Oh, she yeah, loves yeah, it. Yeah. So I have... Uh, a lot of guests on, they all understand the concept, which is don't worry about trying to make up a backstory about Chet. Just come on and have a good time. And, and, uh, it was fun doing your podcast. Oh, really good. Was. I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad I had it was a great fun. time. That, that's my goal. Is is I want the guests to have a great time. I want them walking out of here after thirty five or forty minutes, and just going. That was fun, you know. And and part of it is because I saw the landscape. There are a lot of guys out there. And by guys, I mean men and women. There are a lot of hosts, podcast hosts out there doing a killer job of talking to comedians and comic actors and even sportscasters for two hours, hour and a half, deep diving into into who they are, what makes them tick. And I just thought, I, I think I probably have that muscle, but why? If If I can do something that I think I do better... Again, find an affinity, and I found that affinity for, for this character-driven thing. And I just thought, you know, something, let's be silly. Let's just go do something silly. And then I can slip in some stuff, and you buy it because it's Chet. You know, <laughs> it's, it's almost that Gary Shandling vibe. I, I, you know, I learned that if I'm self-deprecating enough, I can throw in a joke, whether it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, I mean, you know, or, or whether it's, it's Trump and anybody in between – Chet can slide a joke out there, and everybody's going to buy it because it's Chet. Well, great. This has really been fun. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Chet. My pleasure and my pleasure. And this portion of the broadcast, uh, let me think. Let me come up with a good one for you. Okay. <laughs> this uh, brought to you by Show Bloats, the gassy riverboat casino. Fart all you want at Show Bloats. And that will do it for this week. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Bruce and Jason Miller, Howard Hoffman, and John Wolford. If you want to get in touch with me, just write me, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If you haven't already, please subscribe. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood and-